1: Kia ora, Stefano e called Morgan Morganaho, and you're listening to Offspring, a podcast all about the anxieties of a parenting journey. This is episode three, Blue and Pink. Just a content note: this episode is going to deal with the topics of gender and sex. For this week's episode, I'm going to go back to before our daughter was born and revisit how I was feeling then. Last year, while Gemma was pregnant, I did a bunch of different writing activities, basically just as a way of trying to process my thoughts in real time. Now, some of those pieces of writing have been used to help shape these episodes, because in these episodes, I want to cover the past, the present, and a hypothetical future. Predominantly, though, the episodes come from the perspective of someone who is a father now, so I thought it would just be interesting to take one of those pieces I wrote and read it as is, so it's from the perspective of a father to be, instead. While I didn't seriously think I would ever become a father, I always knew I would prefer having a girl if the impossible came to be, and this was largely because I remember what I was like as a boy, and it was disgusting. Those teenage years in particular were a horrifying mess of acne and hyper-hormones, I still feel completely grossed out by the concept of that happening in our house. So of course from the first instance that we saw two lines on the pregnancy test, we just knew in our hearts that we were going to be having a boy. The foolproof logic of our belief came from two irrefutable truths. Firstly, there are a lot of girls in our family. We have four nieces and no nephews. I have six second cousins and only two are boys. It felt like it was a statistical certainty that our child would have to be a boy. Secondly, it just felt like a male was growing in Gemma's belly. Between us we had this overwhelming conviction that a smaller version of me, rather than a smaller version of her was on the cards, and that might sound strange. But there's always so much emphasis on feelings when you start a pregnancy journey that it felt perfectly reasonable for us to trust our gut on this one. Now, because a young boy was an absolute certainty for us, my thinking started to change a bit, quicker than I would have ever anticipated. I began to become more comfortable with the idea of a little boy tearing up the house. As a man, this excitement should probably have stemmed from the potential to have a partner in crime who could get up to fun shenanigans with me. Popular culture and social media are lousy with images of dads and lads doing fun things together like kicking rugby balls and Just being absolute larrikins together. Truth be told, I had little interest in any of that. Not any of it, but it certainly wasn't the primary driver. Instead, I was more excited by the idea of helping my son to avoid some of the bad decisions I have made that are explicitly related to being a man. For several years, I've felt that I have a pretty good grasp on how abhorrent some of my past behaviours were. Through my teenage years and even in early adulthood, I swung violently between being passive, aggressive, dishonest, manipulative, self-pitying, emotionally abusive, unreliable, emotionally distant, dismissive, cold, clingy. Sometimes I was all of those at the same time. You know, what a catch. I ruined multiple relationships, both romantic and platonic, by generally just being toxic lots of my transgressions came from me completely ignoring mental health red flags as we'll probably talk a bit more about over the course of the series and even more came from years of denial about substance abuse which we're definitely talking about soon but i honestly don't think that those twin pillars could have been built without a strong foundation of toxic masculinity It's difficult to talk about toxic masculinity without having people just roll their eyes. It sometimes feels like an internet buzz term and by this point it's kind of cliche for men to plea a mea culpa for their crappy behaviour. So let's just get this out of the way immediately. My bad decisions in my life are mine and mine alone. Nobody forced me to torpedo relationships through a mixture of entitlement, arrogance and meanness. I probably had some natural tendencies to be a bit of a prick that are entirely unrelated to toxic masculinity. However, I don't think it's unreasonable to assume that being immersed in a culture where male entitlement has been sewn into the fabric of our institutions greatly enhanced my perceived right to be a bit of a prick. Looking back, the mind bogglingly simple notion that I was not entitled to relationships, romantic or platonic, completely flew over my head and this ignorance didn't manifest itself in me expecting to go to the markets to pick a girl or a friend off the shelves. Instead it manifested itself in my refusal to change when things didn't work out in any sort of relationship. If I was passive aggressive and cruel to a partner and then they had had enough I blamed them. When I flaked on friends and ignored their messages I got frustrated with them for being too emotional If colleagues got tired of me being an unreliable burden at work, it was the job's fault. Everyone else was to blame for my screw-ups because they were not contorting themselves to fit my universe. Even when frustrated and hurt family and friends reached out to support me, I wouldn't take it. I didn't want to hear people's advice or feedback because I was ludicrously thin-skinned. Alongside entitlement, this kind of extraordinary fragility is one of the most potent symptoms of toxic masculinity in places like New Zealand. Men here often see themselves as stoic and tough, yet at the slightest hint of someone criticising us, we lash out in hysterical self-defence. Nothing scares us more than our own self-doubt, and if we sense others have that doubt, we attack them with unrestrained ferocity. So much of this toxic entitlement and insecurity was utterly avoidable, Had I just been honest with myself, I would have seen that I should have been grateful for the fact that people cared enough to want me around, and I should also have been humble enough to pay attention to every single concern they had. Instead, I just hurt people and projected my own self-loathing onto them. I've worked to make amends where I was brave enough to reach out. For those I've been too cowardly to contact... I lay awake and let intrusive thoughts treat my mind like an open bar at a wedding, and it's not helpful for anyone, but I feel like it's the least I can do, and I owe them that much. Okay, I'm just going to interject here as present-day Bevan, um, that's a load of crap. Don't do that. Just really don't. That's a really unhealthy way to treat um, you know, like your past transgressions and that kind of thing. I've worked, um, I've worked on that a lot over the past year and a half since I wrote this. And it, it makes me cringe hearing it read back. Uh, either apologize or forgive yourself. Because you thinking that you owe them that much, that's I mean, that's just kind of playing the martyr needlessly. You're not giving anything to them. And you're just punishing yourself, which is just bad for everyone in your life. Just, just don't. Okay? Alright, back to past Bevan. The thought of a son of mine repeating my mistakes gave me chills. The more I considered what it would be like having a boy, the more I thought about how I could possibly take some of those learnings and apply them to my parenting. And that undoubtedly sounds kind of pompous and obvious, like, yeah, hey, guy, we're all trying to do that already. You're not special. You're not the first person to come up with the idea of using your life experiences in your parenting but it was a bit of a watershed moment for me. My flaws have led me to a place in my life where I have more gratitude than I've ever had. And so perhaps all that past toxicity and denial could help me be a better parent to a boy who was going to get mixed messages from the world around him. It was exciting and refreshing. And I had a bit of confidence in my ability to actually follow through on it. Now, these realizations were all profoundly emotional and they were deeply cathartic. However, a massive spanner was thrown in the works when we got to week 10 and had the Lumiscreen test. The test showed that we weren't having a boy, we're having a girl. In hindsight, it's pretty crazy that we thought we knew what we were going to have based off a sample size of 10 and some vague feelings. I'm embarrassed to even admit it. But I'm also confessing to a lot of other things I'm embarrassed about, so we can just add this one to the list. And honestly, this this is kind of a minor one compared to how bad I feel about some of the other stuff. As you might imagine, this news brought up a whole lot of new thoughts with stunning immediacy. Like the potential miscarriage scenario, the experience actually beginning to affect me meant that my perspectives have shifted hugely. Finding out that we're having a girl has brought a whole lot of new feelings to the fore that I'm trying to unpack. The positive feelings are very straightforward, I'm genuinely excited to be having a girl. I could not wait to have the daddy-daughter time where I introduce her to things I love in the highly unrealistic hope that any of them might be of interest to her as well. I have silly images in my head of a punk rock chick who doesn't take crap from anyone and who I can introduce to pinball and professional wrestling. Those feelings are fun and exciting and they're easy to deal with. Conversely though, I'm terrified when I ponder what she will be burdened with because of a roll of the genetic dice. There'll be so many obstacles she faces that I'll never have to. The burdens of biology, social inequality, and the ridiculous standards that girls live up to are just a few that come to mind. These obstacles are becoming apparent to me in ways that naturally feel so much more graphic than they ever have before. And the fact that this is now all being brought into sharp relief in a whole new way does kind of concern me. I feel like one of those politicians who decry sexism, but only after they preface things with, quote, as a father slash husband slash son, end quote. It shouldn't take childbirth for us to think about what kind of world we are normalizing for women. The more I look at myself in preparation for fatherhood, the more I see I am guilty of smugly patting myself on the back. I like to think that I'm a good guy because I listen to and respect women, and because I'm pretty self-aware of what advantages in life I have had as a Pakeha man in New Zealand. But even just looking back on the first section of this draft a few days after I wrote it, I really feel like I've evidenced a bit of that smugness. What I've also realised is that despite my efforts, it is so easy to be complacent, and I've taken so many things for granted. Understanding concepts like toxic masculinity and patriarchy, yeah that's a start I guess. Authentically comprehending the mandate that our misogyny has over our lives though, that's scarier. And it's something that pretty much all men, myself included, still shy away from. As men, our right to invade a woman's autonomy is deeply and sometimes subconsciously entrenched into who we are because that's how our social and political structures have been set up economic disadvantages, horrific domestic and sexual violence statistics, not being taken seriously by healthcare professionals, unrealistic beauty standards. All of those violations of freedom are mostly there because of men, especially wealthier, older, white ones, frankly. In 2020, this shouldn't be a controversial statement. But the more we see the world unraveling around us or accidentally stumble into a comment section... It's disheartening to see how little acknowledgement of this there is, and just how reactionary men get when this point is made. It's almost inevitable that our daughter will come across men that treat her like crap. It won't matter if she's gay, straight, bisexual, asexual, pansexual. Realistically, statistically speaking, at some point, a man is going to attack her autonomy by doing something gross or violent or traumatic to her. And I don't even mean in the broad sense, I mean that in a micro, everyday level. She will be groped, or she will be intimidated, or she will be made to feel of lesser value because she is a girl. And those are the lightest scenarios. All of this would be so much worse if she wasn't going to be white and growing up in a comparatively progressive country like New Zealand. Her peers will probably be less of an issue. Kids are so much smarter, more empathetic, and respectful of gender imbalances than we were. And additionally, parents are also much more attuned to the problems of systemic sexism and prejudice than they were even—I don't know—a decade ago. But that's still a small subset of overall males. There's so many more of us that don't want to understand the impact of our actions, let alone look to change them. And I'm not trying to aimlessly throw stones here. I've being that guy in the past, and I'd like to say, I don't know, that I've never pinched a girl's bum in a pub while drunk, or that I've never creepily intimidated a girl unintentionally, I would like to say that I never thought that the universe owed me a partner because I am quote, a nice guy, end quote. But none of that's true, because I would have done and believed all those things at some point and it would have just been normal behavior on a typical day. Men use extreme examples of abuse to minimize the effect of our small acts of regular autonomy theft. It's not even intentional, I don't think. It's just normal. Sadly, it's only taken me until very recently to even begin to understand what traumas our normal behaviors can lead to. Even sadder, a lot of that learning didn't actually come from listening to women in my life it came from watching the Me Too movement unfold, and from watching things like season two of Sex Education on Netflix, which I highly recommend, by the way. Uh, future be popping back in for a second. Uh, also, season three, which came out this year in 2021, that's uh, really, really, really good. Uh, can't say enough good things about it. Okay, back to the past. Somehow, some way, we need to be responsible for ensuring that our girl can trust men while also knowing that the deck is completely stacked in their favor. I want her to be able to live with freedom and to enjoy relationships with whomever she wants. But the idea that her ability to live her life could be undermined by a guy who has had misogyny bred into him via cultural norms is vertigo inducing. I don't know what the strategy is. I know we'll talk about it and we will do whatever we can. But we will never be able to account for the behaviors of others that have been given legitimacy thanks to hundreds of years of patriarchal attitudes being normalized. And that's hard to take. And I'm so curious to know how others deal with these questions, besides uh, boxing lessons from age two. And while we're speaking of gender issues, there is also one major topic that I obviously haven't mentioned and if you're transphobic, or you believe that gender is binary, then you might want to flick the podcast off now, because I'm not interested in a debate about the validity of non-binary gender experiences. You can find a Ben Shapiro or a Brian Tumaki fan group to have those discussions. The following is going to be said with one just undeniable truth framing it, and that's that trans women are women, and trans men are men. If you don't like that, then yeah, this might be the moment that the podcast comes to an end for you, and I hope one day you see things differently. As parents-to-be, we obviously face a genuine possibility that we might produce a child who doesn't feel that their identity matches their assigned gender. Hell, we might have a child that doesn't even identify with any gender at all. And I have absolutely no problem with the potential of this happening, in the abstract. This whole podcast project though is about facing uncomfortable truths and being vulnerable. And this is one of the most painful truths I have to face. That little qualifier about in the abstract that was added? Well it was added because the thought of having a child that identifies as trans or non-binary does still make me very nervous. And I'm not nervous because I care about what anyone thinks or because I don't believe that trans issues are genuine, it's so much simpler than that. The idea that my child might be gender non-conforming makes me nervous because I just don't want them to have to face the untamed bigotry of other people. Right now it kind of feels like transphobia is running a little bit rampant through the world. You can't open your browser without reading an outdated and arrogant take from someone once again confusing sex and gender and making wildly inaccurate claims about both. Just last week for example, JK Rowling went on a rampage after being criticized for her open transphobia. Rowling inexplicably chose to pen an essay full of what can charitably be described as half-truths and misrepresentations but in less charitable terms, you could actually just describe as bullshit. This woman has reach and influence, and it's so sad that she would use her platform as a billionaire to try and tear down trans people in the guise of protecting, quote, real women. The fact that people with such status feel empowered to preach intolerance is excruciating. Now, on the one hand, I'm optimistic that so much of the vocal transphobia is actually just the death rattle of bigotry. It's much more likely that there isn't an increase in transphobia at all. Instead, people are no longer backing down and hiding. People are organising. And younger people refuse to accept assumptions about the way society is ordered laying down. Trans advocates are winning battles and it's frightening the ever-loving crap out of some people so they're getting particularly vocal in their opposition. On the flip side though, I've seen what people say and I've read statistics. In 2018, Rainbow Youth ran the first comprehensive survey of the health and well-being of trans and non-binary people in New Zealand. The analysis makes for some sobering reading. Some of the more notable stats reveal 5 out of every 7 participants aged 15 and older, that's 71%, reported high or very high psychological distress compared with only 8% of the general population. More than 1 in 5, 20.1%, School student participants were bullied at school at least once a week, much higher than the general population at 5%. More than half the participants, 56%, had seriously thought about attempting suicide in the last 12 months. Almost two in five participants, 37%, had attempted suicide at some point, and 12% had made an attempt in the previous 12 months. Two-thirds of participants, 67%, had experienced discrimination at some point. For close to half of the participants, that's 44%, this happened in the last four months. This is more than double the rate of the general population at 17%. Simply put, part of me is selfish and the selfish part of me doesn't want my child to have to be the one that has to endure those struggles. It's so incredibly easy to be an ally. All you have to do is say the right things and support people when they need it. Being a white, hetero, cis male ally is particularly easy because I will never face discrimination for anything. It's painful to admit and acknowledge that I think it would be easier for my family and me if we could avoid that hornet's nest altogether. And that's weak sauce, I know. And I don't have a justification for it. But it is something that's in my mind And I struggle to believe that I'm the only one. I'm also not sure that there is any point in being dishonest about something so important because dishonesty helps nobody on this issue. However, I do also want to state the following in the strongest possible terms as a way of wrapping up. If my future kid hears this one day, I want them to understand that this truth is unequivocal. I will accept them for who they are no matter what. I only want them to be happy and to be as comfortable with themselves as humanly possible. My nerves and my anxieties right now, they won't stop me fighting for them in the future. They will never disappoint me, and I will always have their back. I guess the challenge now is making sure that message is relayed from the moment they're born.
0: Living with the lost boys you spent Is a decade on the convoy? moves every night to prove we were something Got confused if it was from a two that we were running I've seen Gibraltar I've seen the Taj Mahal Soweto, Aya Sophia Chef Chauvin paints the walls blue It's on the dashboard I'm here to file my report Is the vixen of the wolf pack Tell patient zero He can have his rib back You can count my ribs Count my You can count my ribs You can't be too broke to break as a woman always something left to take so you shouldn't try to stay too late or talk to strangers look too long go too far out of range because angels can't watch everybody all the time stay close hems low safe inside that formula works if you can live it but it works by putting half the world off limits you can say go out and be brave I would say be careful stay safe in any given instance that don't hurt it sinks in like stilettos and soft earth like the big win is not a day without an incident i beg to differ with it i think a woman's worth i think that she deserves a better line of work than motherfucking vigilance don't give me vigilance Definition You can't make a difference. It's a big ambition. It's simply standing sentry to your innocence. That's not a way to live. That can't be what a woman is. That gives enough nothing to inspire to. What that is, what that is, is just a life of running fire drills. we running fire drills. We're running fire drills. We're running fire drills.
1: That was Fire Drills by Dessa, who is part of the Doomtree Collective, a great hip-hop collective out of the USA that I highly recommend. I also recommend that you check out some of her amazing solo work. There were two other songs worth shouting out in this podcast. The first was by Daniel Hines, and that was a cover of Avril 14th by Apex Twin originally. The other song was 2014 by the album Leaf. Offspring is written and produced by me, Bevan Morgan at Momo Studios and the one and only Kitty Kirikiriroa Aotearoa. You can reach me by email, which is just OffspringPodcast, or one word, at gmail.com and on Twitter, which is just at OffspringCast. You can also find some of my older pop culture writings on my personal website, which is just www.bevanmorgan.com. Thanks so much to FreeFM89.0 and AccessMedia.NZ for their help in distributing this podcast. And thanks so much to you for listening. Hopefully we'll see you next week.